Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. I'm the manager here at the Scholar. Thank you for making your way through the nightmare that is the construction on 3rd and Verbeck at the moment. We do anticipate it to be over in the next couple weeks, so by the end of May, uh, the intersection is going to be looking nice and beautiful and pedestrian friendly. It's worth the wait. Uh, but before we begin, some quick housekeeping as always. I'd encourage you all to take an event newsletter up at the front of the cafe. We have a lot of upcoming events in the next few weeks. Uh, we have a notable gun control activist on his plan to take down the NRA. And next <laughs> month, we're hosting an event with the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, the title of the book is called Red State Revolt, which dives into the teacher's strike wave and working class politics. Lots of good stuff happening as always here at The Scholar, and we'd love to see you back. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our speakers for today's event. We are very honored to welcome two leading voices on nonviolent resistance, George Lakey and Michael Long. George Lakey has been active in direct action campaigns for six decades. Recently, recently retired from Swarthmore College, Lakey was arrested for the first time at a civil rights demonstration in March 1963, and most recently uh, in March 2018 in the Power Local Green Jobs campaign. He lives in Philadelphia. Michael Long is an associate professor of religious studies and peace and conflict studies at Elizabethtown College and is the author or editor of numerous books on civil rights, religion, and politics. Long has written for the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, USA Today, Huffington Post, and many other outlets. His work has been featured or reviewed in on NPR, the New York Times, Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, USA Today, Salon, CNN, and many other newspapers and journals. He has spoken at Fenway Park, the CIA, the Library of Congress, the National Museum of American History, and many, many more places. A huge thank you to Michael and George for joining us at The Scholar today, so please join me in giving them a warm Harrisburg welcome. Thanks to Alex and thanks to the Midtown for hosting us. It's good to see all of you out tonight. It's a beautiful night, so I'm glad you're all mm. in here and not out resisting. <laughs> Though this is itself, I would think, a form of nonviolent resistance, creating a counter dialogue to a lot of the dialogue that we hear during the day on TV, if you listen as I do. So the format will be pretty simple. Oh, it's good to see familiar faces, too. So thanks to my friends and my students for coming out as well. So the, the format's pretty simple. Uh, I'm going to interview George about how we win his book. And I'll be talking about my book as well as we go through the evening. Uh, the interview will probably last about 30 minutes. And then we'll open it up for your questions and our possible answers. Uh, but if you feel so urged during the interview period as well, feel free to shoot up your hand. And shoot's always a bad word when you're talking about nonviolence. <laughs> and I'll try to see you. But welcome, everybody. And welcome to George as well. George, you want to open with any words before we go ahead? No need. OK. So I was wondering if you could begin by talking a little bit about the origin of your book, what it comes out of, and why you decided to write it. It actually grew out of the Viking Economics book, the mm -hmm. previous book, which is also for sale here. And uh, the Viking Economics book was, uh, was trying not only to look at what the Scandinavians have achieved, 
what their societies look like now. But also, I was very curious about where did they come from? Like, where, where does all that, you know, where were they? And how did they turn themselves around? Because 100 years ago, they were a mess. You know, they, they, that's why so right. many Norwegians came here and Swedes and Danes. They were getting away from a situation of enormous inequality and lack of justice and lack of opportunity and lack of individual freedom. And so they, they got out. And uh, that was 100 years ago. Now, of course, the Scandinavians are at the top of all the international charts for all kinds of things. Best place in the world to be a mom, best place to be an elder, most individual freedom that, uh, that exists, m most uh, democracy, most, um, most equality. Happiest. All that. Happiest place. Happiest place. Yeah. They rotate among themselves. They play right, musical yeah. chairs on the happiest people. And so, uh, so I got curious about the turnaround. And, the, the, and then the way that's connected to this book is that uh, I was so surprised that they turned themselves around at a time of the greatest polarization uh -huh. that they'd experienced in modern history. And that, we, we experience polarization all the time, right? I mean, like everywhere I go, people are talking about polarization. And 10 years ago, when I was working on the book, I had the view, the belief about polarization, that it gets us stuck. Because I figured, how can we make progress if we're uh, screaming at each other and nobody's listening? I, so I, I just thought polarization was a horrible thing from the point of view of progressive people. And then when I found out that the Scandinavians made their big turnaround at the time of greatest polarization, I thought, well, this doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. at all. So I was scratching my head like crazy and then we got to think about, well, what about our country in the 1930s? Tremendous polarization, Nazis, right? And Ku Klux Klan riding high and all that. And it was the period of our greatest progress in the first half of the 20th century. What? So my belief is getting, you know, pummeled by empirical reality. I had to think about the 60s, of course, and some of you will remember that in the 60s, there was the Thanksgiving dinner problem. Oh, we don't want the relatives to fight over Vietnam when they get <laughs> together for Thanksgiving, you know, and fight about the civil rights movement and stuff like that. It was tremendously a busy time of fighting for us with uh, the Nazis, uh, again, uh, you know, on the move, the Ku Klux Klan, this, uh, what was it called, the Symbionese Liberation Army on the left, right? I mean, all of this extreme polarization going on, and it was the biggest period of forward progress in our country in the second half of the 20th century, mm -hmm. right? So I am just, I'm beside myself with, A, I don't like to have to change my beliefs. <laughs> if I want to feel gloomy about polarization, I should be allowed to feel gloomy. <laughs> I shouldn't have to confront polarization as a big opportunity for change, which is what it was for the Scandinavians and also what it's been for us. Uh, so that was one thing. But then for another thing, I realized, well, but, but there's nothing about polarization that assures that you're going to have a positive outcome, right? right? Because of Germany... They were polarized and they went to Hitler. Italy, polarized, went to Mussolini and the fascists. So it looks like polarization is neutral with regard to outcome. It's just a kind of heating up process that makes the society volatile and then where it goes is where it goes. And it seems to have a lot to do with 
because I could really see the mistakes being made in Germany and Italy as compared to the Scandinavians, very smart about the way they were operating. And I thought, look, it really has to do a lot with this character of the social movements and what they, how they navigate this tough period. It's almost like it's whitewater rafting or something, you know. It matters how you deal with, with a river that's on a rampage. And so that's what led to the book. That's a long answer, but it's, it's the deepest answer because I, I didn't, I was too tired to write another book. I thought I should have a few <laughs> years off before writing another book. But once I realized, oh my gosh, it matters hugely how you operate in a polarized situation, yeah. and this is getting more polarized all the time, then I thought, uh-oh, i got to write a book. You didn't talk so much about partisan issues, but you do have a sharp leftist political yeah. vision. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, uh, I, I do have criticisms of the Nordic model mm -hmm. uh, about how, how things are working out in Scandinavia. I, I would like there to be more decentralization in those societies or various ways that if I, if I lived there, I did live in Norway for a while and learned the language and stuff. If I just settled down there, I suppose I would be among the radicals critiquing, you know? But on the other hand, as compared with here, it's so, so far and away better. And in terms of even empowerment of the individual, um, th and that deeply impresses me. The the uh, the fact that once you th once you push the economic elite out of its domination, and create a genuine democracy, which we don't have, and they didn't used to have. But once you have a democracy, then the individual citizens become very powerful. Mm. So, for example. Um, if you were Norwegian and you were uh, touristing around, they love to tourist around because they, they earn high wages, they have lots and lots of paid vacations, six weeks minimum, more sometimes. So they want to see the world, right? A so, great rail system. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So they, let's say you show up in Chile and you're, you're, you're you know, zooming around, noticing things, and you see that they're fish farming and you're interested in fish farming because we do it back in the old country in Norway. Uh -huh. So you're looking at the fish farming setup and you find out, oh my gosh, this, is, this fish farm operation is owned by a Norwegian firm. It's a Norwegian corporation. Oh, well, how do they do things? So you're looking around and you're, polluted water? Well, we'd never stand for that. And then you get interested in the people and you find out the people are being exploited, the workers are being exploited and they're not being paid well. Well, we wouldn't stand for that. So then you go home, when you're finished with your vacation, you go home, you check in with the nonprofit corporation, the commission that sits there in Oslo, and you say, guess what I saw? And you become a whistleblower and they put investigators on it and if they find that indeed your observations were correct, they nail that corporation for misbehaving abroad. Hmm. <laughs> Can you imagine us running around and then nailing our corporations for the mischief that it does abroad or the, the terrible practices? I'm thinking Nike. Are you Can thinking you? Nike? <laughs> Just for the, exactly, exactly. What, I mean, what a, a, an extraordinary empowerment that is. Uh -huh. And so that's what, that's my, my leftism is very influenced by the idea that we, we should be in charge of our countries. All right, let's talk about that. Uh, that has to do with the issue of power, and you address this a bit in your book. Can you describe 
your understanding of power, you use this beautiful metaphor in the book about pillars. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Mm. Well, it, especially, um, let's see. Actually, I learned this from Gene Sharp, a mm -hmm. scholar that we have in common as, as, as having been very influential and some heads nodding here. Gene Sharp, awesome foundational person for the field of nonviolent action. And um, he, he figured out that while the conventional way of looking at any power structure is that the power is held at the top, so these days we're obsessed with the White House and you know the Congress and so on and so on. He said what's actually true is that the rulers are dependent on the cooperation of the people. And that can be best formulated, as you say, um, by, by thinking of it as pillars of support that hold up the ruler. And so uh, obvious pillars are the military and the police and the media and the educational system and so on. But, uh, and that all of those can be tackled by a smart people's movement that goes after those pillars and makes them uh, uh, woozy, <laughs> mushy, <laughs> no longer granite pillars, right? but things that can melt away. And that's how it's possible to overthrow dictators. That a movement goes after the pillars that hold up the dictator or the government in the case of, we don't have a dictatorship yet, thank goodness. Uh, but going after the pillars and weakening them in such a way that it's possible then to, to, uh, to move things forward. Um, so that's that's the basic concept. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. Sometimes when I talk with my students about power, I try to have them envision a pyramid, especially my first year students who are coming out of high school and I tell them to think about cheerleaders uh, using a pyramid and then thinking about the power of their college president mm. at the top and the board of trustees, and then the faculty and the staff. But those students really are the cheerleaders on the bottom. And if one of them pulls out, you got some problems with the power at the top. And that's the way we can think of not only small institutions, but society at large as well. And I think the pillars metaphor is really helpful. So when we talk about attacking those pillars, or at least helping them crack a little bit, uh, you draw a distinction between mobilizing and organizing. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading that section, I thought to myself, one of the things I really like about Facebook is that I can get to a protest really fast. Uh, and they can call a protest, Absolutely. you know, my friends can call a protest for a week from now, and a lot of people will show up. Hmm. You can call for a protest in D.C. in a matter of days. For example, go to the airport after the uh, travel ban, right? And thousands of people will show up. And you want to describe that as different from organizing. Right. So can you say a little bit about that and maybe the weaknesses of social media? Yeah, the, the mobilization can make a dramatic splash, and sometimes that splash can move the dime a little bit. And for sure, it can sometimes inspire people in it right. to then take right. further steps. But as far as really going after uh, a, a specific objective and and make and forcing a determined opponent to change their minds on that, that requires sustainability. That requires a direct action campaign. An example of that, uh, that um, let's see, that, that involved us here in, in Harrisburg was when the group that I started with others in 2010, 
Earthquaker Action Team decided, some of you nodding your heads, uh, decided that PNC Bank should stop financing mountaintop removal coal mining right. in Appalachia. Yeah. And it had no intention of stopping because it really liked the income that was coming in that way. And we, we pointed out to them, but it's twice the cancer rates in those areas. It's birth defect rates up. Like, you're responsible for that when you loan the money that makes that possible. And they said, well, uh, go, to your, go to the politicians and get them to pass a law against it, and then we won't do it anymore. And we thought, mm. whoa, irresponsibility. <laughs> no, no, no. Mm. We are saying you need to stop. And so it took, it, there was, I mean, if, if we'd had, uh, you know, 100,000 people out demonstrating about PNC, what they would know is that then the next day they would go back to work, but we'd be home right. or doing our whatever we yeah. do, right? So what would be required to get PNC out of that business was an ongoing sustained campaign. And that's what we did. We did 125 actions, which included coming through Harrisburg uh, on, our, on our way to Pittsburgh. Right? We walked 200 miles. You, you were, yeah. I die in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was exciting, wasn't it? It was a wonderful campaign. I think she's saying they had to die in at the bank. Is that right? <laughs> in the rain. In the rain. You're really dead. That was a very wet uh, event. Yeah, but it was the sustained pressure so that even though we were not working on large scale, right, we were yeah. working in, with relatively small groups, as far as they could tell, uh, we would never stop and we would be a problem for them and larger on a larger and larger scale. Mm. So we grew from a little group in West Philly to 13 states. Oh, grow, 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 grow. And the level of disruption that we were able to create kept increasing, increasing, increasing. So as far as they could see into the future, you know, it, it, was, it, it, it became intolerable as they were projecting ahead. And so they decided, okay, we'll get out of the business. And they did. And within a week, Barclays Bank in London also withdrew mm. from that. And there's been hardly any blowing up of mountains since then. Yeah. So it's really campaigning that, that sustained pressure, or you could say that uh, cr making the pillars mushier and mushier uh, that they're counting on for their profits uh, that finally get, the, uh, get the, the change made that we want to make. So there was an Occupy Harrisburg movement. Was there anybody here active in Occupy Harrisburg? I see some, some, great. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Occupy movement in general, in terms of successful ingredients of, of mobilization or mm. organization, mm. and then uh, maybe point out some weaknesses of the movement as well. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as a movement? It was a movement, yes, yeah. yes it was. It was a movement that got total, uh, I, I think that made an enormous contribution in terms of giving us a chance to talk about the economic elite without sounding like communists. Mm. <laughs> you know, Jonathan Smucker was here uh, to talk about Occupy as well. He was very um, active in Occupy. Very active. And he said one of the big things that it did was just really change our language. So if I say 99%, you know what that means. If I say 1%, you know what that means as well. That was a Go huge ahead, George. change. Right, yeah. We really Just needed linguistic that. change. We really yeah. needed that, that shift. Um, so that was a huge contribution. And it was an expression that we were not really all delighted with the 2008 
race to the financial cliff and the, the fact that the, the stimulus, the first stimulus that bailed out Wall Street was not followed up with a second stimulus to, to deal with the rest of us, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and that we were not just okay with that. It was, it was a way of expressing. Um, on the other hand, it did have the problem of getting rigidly attached to a particular tactic. Oh, after all, uh, in the database that we created at Swarthmore, we include about 200 different tactics of action, 200 different methods of action uh, for nonviolent struggle. But, and only one of which is to pick a piece of turf and say, this is where we are, this is ours, right? But the Occupy Wall Street folks, and then many of the other places around, uh, did choose that kind of turf approach. Uh, and what I suggested to my friends who were involved with Occupy in Philadelphia was, as quick as possible, declare victory and leave. Mm. Because you know you're not gonna stay there forever. You're going to be forced out. What's the fun of leaving under compulsion, kind of with your tail under your legs? I mean, it's, mm. you know, it's not exactly a glorious moment of departing from that when you have, when you have uh, made it such a big deal, right? So tactics, all tactics, including an occupation, uh, all needs to be need to be seen in a larger context a strategic context. Tactics only really make sense if they fit your strategy for change. So I was saying, so declare victory, march out with, uh, you know, blare of trumpets or however you want to march out, and then c continue the movement it through a campaign that tackles one particular thing and goes after one particular target and makes a win. Because our country really needs wins. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of folks who feel somewhat powerless, feel a little bit like, right, we, we, don't, we can't throw our weight around very successfully. But if you generate some wins, then people start saying, whoa, we, ha we, we have agency. We can make a country be the way we want it to be. One of the side effects of the Occupy movement is that a lot of people in that movement became involved in local electoral politics. Mm. And I think some would identify the victory of Ocasio-Cortez mm. as an effect of the Occupy movement. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that shift into electoral politics. Mm. Is there a time to move from protest to politics, and how do you determine when that is? Mm. Mm. Well. That depends a lot on who we think is running the Democratic Party. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, my analysis, backed up by a Princeton study that uh, I uh, have a footnote uh, describing, um, uh, is that the Democratic Party is actually owned and operated by the economic elite, by the 1%. And that it, it has, though, as is, of course, the Republican Party, but they, have, they play different roles in the political system, very different roles. The Republican Party, historically, has been the party of repression, of smashing movements, <laughs> or trying to. The Democratic Party's mode, its style, its job, has been to co-opt social movements and bring them into the loving embrace of the Democratic Party and make sure they don't get a whole lot of what they want. 
Um, so, for example, if you look at the civil rights movement, the history of the civil rights movement, it, it made its biggest gains in the period 1955 to 1965, which was the period when neither party wanted to touch it. The, the Kennedy brothers agreed with the Democratic establishment that we do not want to support the civil rights movement. Because if we do, then Kennedy running again, that was the expectation he would run again in 1964, would lose because the, Democrat, the, the solid South would vote against anybody who associated with the civil rights movement, right? So uh, it, it can't be, it, it, it's not viable in their view. And it's very important though, um, and so, and so don't touch the civil rights movement. So they maintained that standoffish role for the years when the civil rights movement made its greatest progress. And then as, when it, the movement just kept growing and growing and growing, getting more and more and more support, the Democrats changed to, oh, well, then we have to do our historic role. We have to co-opt them. And so, okay, run for mayor in Detroit, do this, do that, do the other thing. And the uh, movement was absorbed by the Democratic Party and its impact decreased, decreased, decreased. And one reason why we still have so much racism today is because that movement couldn't continue to be on the offensive. Mm -hmm. it, was, and it was trapped in the uh, framework of the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. which, is, which is itself owned and operated, in my view, by the, by the economic elite. So I think uh, environmentalists, uh, gun control folks, all people who have a progressive concern have to ask themselves as they relate to the Democratic Party, um, uh, are, is this, uh, are we dancing a dance that is the traditional co-optation dance, which means that we, we, our impact will be blunted, or are we changing the party more than it's changing us? And that's the uh, that's the question for <laughs> Alexandria, right? <laughs> and for, right, yeah. And for that gang. And and the reason for the tension with the uh, speaker. Right, 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 right. So she, it's absolutely unheard of. You know, in Congress, when you're first there, you've got to brown those, right? You've got to right, right, yeah. and and show that you're the loyalist of loyal. You know, and then bit by bit, you accrue some power over time, right? And instead of that, she didn't even know Pelosi, and she sits in in the office because actually, <laughs> my my students, the uh, the Swarthmore yeah. students who started the Sunrise Movement, started the sit-in, and they had invested in her campaign. And she knew them, they knew her, and they called her up and said, okay, we've started the sit-in, now's the time to, for your appearance. So she comes over and joins them and makes this big buzz that launches the Green New Deal in such a, in such a, a, a strong way. So that, I think, is an example of, I mean, the parties exist. If it's possible for you to figure out how to use them without them using you, then why not use them? Use, use whatever's available, right, that, that is within our ethical uh, framework. Um, that would be an example of using the Democrats, the, the, the uh, grassroots movement, the Sunrise Movement, using the Democrats for their own purposes, thanks to their having made links with some of the left Democrats. But that is a different, that tactical Moving that kind of agenda tactically is different from imagining that you can take the Democratic Party as a party away from the economic elite. There is no way they will allow you to do that. 
Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they're just, because they're already, somebody else got there already. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about violent versus nonviolent tactics uh, now. And the Democratic Party really co-opted the civil rights movement right after King died because over 100 cities exploded in violence that night and in the following days. And all of a sudden, Lyndon Johnson, who was calling King that and preacher started extolling the virtues of Dr. King and telling everybody to follow his nonviolent path. All of a sudden, King became Mr. Popular, whereas when he died, his popularity was really at an all-time low. Uh, so let's talk, and Dr. King, as you know, is famous for nonviolent means. You take a swipe at those who want to use violence in order to advance social justice in the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you make some room for the Black Panthers' defense, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that if you would. Yeah, it's a very complicated. Uh, and thing. then I'll open up the floor. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. And and I want your input too on all these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, studied yeah. all these things. Go ahead. So I'm talking so much. Anyway, um, I like to talk. So you're very nice, also very generous to let me talk. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. So yeah, the civil rights movement. Of course, I was all in. I was a trainer for Mississippi Summers, 1964. Uh, that you know, all those Northerners going south for the to join SNCC in Mississippi. All of that stuff. Um, what a, what a movement that was, and and so and the violence question was so upfront because uh, there wasn't uh, because the level of danger, the level of risk was so enormous, right? In in the deep south, I mean, I mean think think of yourself as what if you were like twenty something and entering Mississippi, you're black. You're a student, or, or you know, taking some time off to go into Mississippi to do voter registration with black people. Um, you know that the Ku Klux Klan is everywhere. You know, if you want protection, uh, you don't go to the police because the police are the Ku Klux Klan at night. They put on sheets yeah. at night and take off their uniforms, right? So you're not going to get protection from law enforcement locally. You're not going to get it from a state level because the state wants you dead. And you're not getting it from the feds because, as I explained, that was a period when the Democrats didn't want to touch the civil rights movement. And in fact, J. Edgar Hoover, head of, CI of FBI, was actively trying to undermine your movement, actively undermining your movement. Okay, so there you are, like as naked as you can imagine to the violence of the most developed and sustained terrorist organization the United States has ever made. And they won. So I go into that question in the book. A time when it'd be so tempting to defend yourself uh, with violence on the assumption that violence is more powerful as a means of defense, but a widely held assumption, right? Um, and then, but because of, uh, of both strategic insight and, well, mainly strategic insight, I would say, um, most of the movement that actually made gains relied on nonviolent power instead of violent power, even for protection. Now, uh, yeah, and you're right, I go into this, the, the Panthers uh, as an example in the North because the, the, 
there, there was such a justification, I thought, to their claim that they ought to be able to carry guns around to defend themselves because the police mm -hmm. were the problem, not the solution for them, right? Mm -hmm. So they ought to be able to take, the, take it into their own hands. And they were doing great things for the community. They were doing breakfast programs and education and so mm -hmm. on and so on. They were doing a lot of positivity. And they didn't say, we're going to use these guns to go on the offensive and take on the you know, take on the military, try to do an armed rebellion, you know, I mean, that's silly for any anybody in America to think they can do that. But they were just saying, we want to use it for defense. But what happened, of course, to the Panthers was that they were defeated, they were just, uh, just wiped out, and it was the use of the guns that was the pretext for doing it. It wasn't that uh, the federal government when, and with police departments, local police departments, Chicago and other places cooperating, w were saying, we don't like their feeding children, so we're going to exterminate them, right? <laughs> Instead, they said, they carry guns, and therefore, we're going to do them in. And uh, in my own living room, there were a couple of Black Panthers who sat on the sofa with a, a cr very, very crowded living room to share what their experience was with the Black Panthers. And they said, you know what? We made a militarist error. We assumed that somehow guns make you safer and therefore mm. you carry them, but that's not thinking ahead about how your opponent is going to use the fact that you're carrying guns mm -hmm. against you as an excuse to do you in. And that's the, you know, it just gets so complicated. It's a very complicated dance, right? So you can be nonviolent for various reasons. One is for principles, right? And that's called principled nonviolence. And so maybe you're opposed to violence because maybe you follow the teachings of Jesus, for example. Uh, but there are other reasons, and they're pragmatic and practical reasons, and they're the ones that George is hitting on. And I'll just add another one, Erica Chenoweth. Maybe I can give you a book to read. Uh, it's on civil resistance by Erica Chenoweth. And she's uh, done a lot of studies to suggest that nonviolent campaigns are actually much more successful, twice as successful as violent ones in accomplishing uh, their goals. So that's good to keep in mind as well. I think we'll open the floor to questions. Uh, Alex, to my right, has a microphone uh, for any of you, especially those of you who are in, involved in Occupy Harrisburg. I'd like to hear about some of the challenges that you faced. Do you have a question? Just raise your hand and I'll come around with the microphone. Yeah. So you refer to the dualism of politics and protest. I wonder if you'd jump to a more Trinitarian possibility between the parties of adding another P of progressive, of a, a more dynamic concept within nature, as if we use nature as the creation design, uh, before a cell um, divides and forms a new thing, it increasingly polarizes. And so it's not surprising at all that you would discover that within the extreme polarization allowed the option of a new emerging. And so I'm, I'm wondering uh, if, if we think of progress forward rather than resistance against, uh, mm -hmm. what you might think that would look like given uh, your deep exploration of these in all these different settings. Mm. Do you want to do that? Because no, you, I don't. You, you really <laughs> highlights that, that word resistance, yeah. Uh, I don't know how to answer the question. I think it's a good question, but I think at least it touches on the vi what George Bush called the vision thing. Mm. Uh, what is it mm. that drives us forward, right? Mm. And for Dr. King, it was the beloved community, and the beloved community mm. has three parts to it. Economic justice, 
uh, racial reconciliation, and peace. And so I'm sure you're doing these tactics and they seem negative because you're fighting against things, but you're doing it because of something positive that's out there that's almost transcendent to the movement and that you're shooting for it. So you're going toward it, but you're also driven by it. And so for Dr. King, the means of a movement have to reflect the end of the movement. For Dr. King, the end coheres with the movement. And he and both Gandhi said the end should pre-exist in the means. So I hope that gets a little bit to what you're talking about. the dynamic aspect of things arising as there's a need for them to arise. Oh. Uh, and then when the need is met, they no longer need to exist. So I had a little bit of a question and maybe in terms of the structures and the pillars and acknowledging that all of our societal pillars, if you will, of education, government, transportation, economics, are all uh, in advanced stages of osteoporosis and just need a touch to fall over. Um, given that that's the current crisis situation as well as the increased polarization, what would you see as being constructive to moving forward um, rather than forming new institutions? Uh, well, maybe I could, uh, yeah. It, uh, a cool thing about the Viking economics book is that it's more holistic. It tells about the multiple things they did in the middle of their polarization in order to move forward. The, the, my current book really focuses in on this technology called nonviolent direct action campaigning. But the Viking economics shows that the Nordics were very reliant also on co-ops, building the new institutions that they hoped would really run, run society. And it's amazing how strong their cooperative movements not only got historically, but still are today. Like an average Swede is a member of three co-ops, for example. The dairy industry is, uh, is uh, in Norway, and, and Denmark is largely cooperative. The largest single bank in Norway is a cooperative bank. It's a publicly owned bank, and so on. So they did a lot of work in connection with their vision, as, as Michael says, they had a vision of what they wanted, and then they kept thinking, well, what are pieces of that vision that we could do right now, even while we're in the midst of struggle? And so they were able to, for example, do co-ops, even while they were uh, you know, going after the pillars and weakening those pillars. In a sense, you could say they were building new pillars for a different kind of society. So. Alex, yeah. Hello, um, I have a quick question. So I work, I do political work, uh, leave it at that. Um, how do we combat the rhetoric of rage that is coming from the actual entrenched uh, Republican institutions? Um, and is that concerning? I'm tempted to run into this because my brother, uh, listens to Rush Limbaugh all the time and watches Fox News and voted for Trump and is outraged. And uh, so I, we, ha we have a great relationship, we have great, uh, great conversations. Um, <laughs> so I get practical experience in working with somebody who's enraged. And I, I uh, ask myself, as he's raging on about this or that, I ask myself, what part of this can I agree with? 
And when I ask myself that internally, I find it's amazing how much I can agree with. For example, he, he, he also liked very, very much Bernie Sanders. Uh, and he liked both Bernie and Trump because they were both outliers. Huh. He said both of the parties, both of the major parties have sold out the blue collar working class of America and the, and the, the small farmers, the small farmers have been sold out by the, both parties. Um, so he said, and Sanders is not controlled by anybody, and, and <laughs> certainly Trump is not controlled by anybody. So I, I'm going to, you know, let's, let's hope Bernie makes it. Well, he didn't. And so then it was Hillary, that, like the very, you know, center of the Democratic Party uh, establishment, and then you had Trump on the other hand. So he, he thought, well, you know, vote for Trump because at least he's an outlier on, a you know, on what he thinks is a bad day. He may accidentally do something good. Uh, but the, so he but he rages about the the uh, walk away from what he calls common people or ordinary people that has happened massively in our country, and and he, it even happens regionally, right? Like when I did when I brought my book tour to Iowa, there was somebody came up afterward with tears in her eyes saying, "Thank you, you're the first East Coast author." Who's bothered to drop out of the sky and visit us here in the mid, in in my state, because all the East Coast and West Coast authors just do flyover, flyover, flyover. They couldn't care less about us. You know, there's a lot to be angry with. Uh, so I just f try to find things to be angry with for, that's coming from the Republican side and ask myself what part of that can I join, and then we have a, great conversations. Oh, one other thing that really matters is, uh, is I ask him, you know, what, what are the pro specific problems that he's handling? Well, he has a couple of grandchildren who are disabled. He, his, his daughter, their mother, is a hero because she's working so hard to get services for these youngsters, and it's so hard, and she works herself to the bone to try to get the help for them, right? Uh, and how many Trump voters have medical problems in their families. How many, especially working class voters, have older people who are facing a pensionless future and so on and so on, right? Um, so so what, what, what do I say? I say is, so I'm back from Norway, I say, oh, guess what? I'm back from Norway, I learned something about how your grandchildren would be, uh, the services for your grandchildren you know, in Norway, it would be blah, 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 blah. And the way that fits into their healthcare system is blah, 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 blah. And he says, sounds like a plan. <laughs> so he is all ready to sign up for socialized medicine as long as I don't use that word, the S word, but instead describe the actual, how it, how it actually works. It's just so sensible. And that's why I wrote Viking Economics, because so much of what they do is just so sensible. So I think it's just, even though I'm fond of you know, calling myself a socialist, I'm happy not to call myself a socialist with my brother. <laughs> I'm much more interested in communication, right, than in identity in that respect. I could um, comment a little bit about Occupy Harrisburg, but I have a question first. Uh, Norway, the Viking countries, are doing everything right. Well. Well, 
You know what I mean. Kind of. But they have less religion than the rest of us. And this country that, you know, is so religious is doing worse things than anybody else in the world. Do you have an explanation for that? <laughs> it, it's it's historical and very long <laughs> and very involved. Um, I uh, I mean, really, a bunch of your authors, right? And, and Doctor, you uh, Michael's already talked about Doctor King. I think re religion is a very uh, it's very big, it's very strong, and it gets captured when it can get captured by the economic elite to further their goals, right? And that's happened through the evangelical, most of the evangelical movement in this country. On the other hand, I was brought up an evangelical, and I, what I got from it was that Jesus was this amazing prophet challenging the uh, economic elite of his, uh, of his day, right? Challenging the empire, of his day, I mean, I got him as an incredible radical, and I think that's, as far as I could tell from, you know, and I was in Sunday school, you know, every Sunday, uh, as far as I could tell, Jesus was leading me to be, uh, you know, a prophet in my own way. So uh, it's, 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 very it's very powerful and ambiguous in the way it gets used and, and, uh, and the way we can use it. So I'm, I'm for uh, respecting its power and accessing it for people who are interested in doing that in a way that really supports, uh, supports them. Yeah. yeah, Marx talked about, Karl Marx talked about religion being the opiate of the masses. And so the elite would use religion in, in order to drug the masses, make them sleepy about their uh, material conditions around them so that they would be satisfied with heaven out there, but not about earth here. I think that's part of the problem. But folks like Dr. King used religion uh, to challenge social systems. It's just that there aren't enough people like Dr. King. The other thing I'd like to note is that religions tend to be tribal. And tribes are all over the place. It's just not the tribe of Christianity. It's the tribe of my church down the street. And our God is not your God. And your God is not their God. It's just not true that people all worship the same God. That's just bullshit. They don't. We all worship, I mean, those who worship, worship their own God. And that creates huge problems and conflicts, hmm. just by virtue of its existence. So I will stipulate without debate that liberals are smarter than conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> but the qu my question is, uh, are they smart enough, are they smart enough to overcome their inherent deficiencies? And current, current circumstances would seem to indicate that they are not. Right. Uh, so <laughs> why aren't you doing better? <laughs> well, there's this weird split that I run into between people who can be perfectly strategic and methodical in developing their careers, liberals, who develop careers being very strategic. First I do this, I'll get that degree, I'll do this, I'll intern there, and so on, so on, step by step, boom, 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 these things have to be done. 
Um, but when it comes to uh, political issues, forget all about strategy. And our concern instead to just be morally right. And I think that that accounts for a lot of the problem. I keep challenging liberals to become strategic. And that's why, my, that's why the new book is about strategy. I, I think it w there's plenty of brain power. I agree with you about that. Uh, but the brain power isn't being used uh, except for a concern to, to be on the right side. But being on the right side, you can lose a lot of struggles being on the right side if you don't have a strategy. Question to your right. Well, the only other thing I'd add to that is that liberals tend to be work weak on defense. And when elections happen around True. issues of war and conflict, liberals fall flat. Mm. Mm. Republicans and patriotism take off. And so why is there concern among Democrats about a war with Iran? Trump will win the next election. Question up to you, right? Thank you. When I heard you mention uh, about the uh, Student uh, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, it reminded me of uh, many conversations that I've had with uh, my uncle uh, Bernard Lafayette oh, wow. and uh, my aunt uh, Amelia Boynton. And I wanted yeah. to just put an asterisk uh, next to Amelia Boynton, in which women in history, have, especially in the civil rights movement, have not really uh, been uh, uh, spoken about or written about often, but they're really the backbone and the, right. the foundation of really any, any movement. Uh, and uh, just uh, one other note about uh, religiosity and spirituality. Uh, there, you know, there's a big difference between you know, the, the uh, actual structure of religiosity and spirituality, and you mentioned, um, uh, if I can paraphrase you, uh, and there is a phrase that comes to mind when I'm hearing you speak, which is when the love, when the power of love is greater than the love for power, there will be peace. Mm -hmm. And Bernard Lafayette and Amelia Boynton actually personified that in which they dedicated their lives to the peace movement. And I wanted to thank you very much for bringing up the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, mm -hmm. by the way. Thank you. George, you mind if I run with part of that comment? Please Thanks do. for those uh, names that I know. Uh, Bernard Lafayette was a freedom rider. Is that correct? Yeah. So I encourage you to read about the freedom rides. And in terms of women being the backbone of so many movements, I'll tell you that on December 5th, 1955, when Rosa Parks refused to surrender her seat for a white person, that night, there was a, man, a woman named Joanne Gibson Robinson. You can read her about, about her in We the Resistance. She decided that she was going to copy, remember, this is in the days before email, thousands and thousands of leaflets asking the African Americans of Montgomery to boycott the buses the following day. She was part of the Women's Political Action Council. That boycott happened because of Joanne Gibson Robinson. And then it was hijacked by Dr. King and other men in the movement. Mm. Yes. Mm. Mm. True. Mm. Question on the stairs? Mm. Um, I was in 
involved in the um, anti-coal movement. Um, Anti-which? Anti-coal, anti-mountaintop oh, yeah. removal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you were talking about winning and about um, building wins into your work. I know that your book is about strategy. Um, and I have this really distinct memory of being at a power shift in D.C. where they announced to the crowd that they were going to take the coal plant offline in D.C. Um, and everyone was celebrating like this was a really big win, but the subtext was that it was going to be converted to a natural gas facility. Mm. Ah. And there were, I was happened to be standing next to the 15 activists from the um, shale fields in Pennsylvania, and they were sobbing. Mm. Um, I just want you to take some space to talk about um, false wins and the way that um, nonviolence can get wrapped up in performance art and sort of the, the game of pretending to be winning when you're not actually winning, when your movement is continually co-opted and we're being paraded, brown paper, everything, um, without any actual dramatic changes happening. Um, you mentioned that we need wins because people are disillusioned and they don't want to participate because they do feel like we're losing, um, but, but we are losing. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, 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 George, take that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I so agree yeah. because I'm always, in, in the groups I'm in, I, I tend to be the one who's most worried about that, exactly that point. <laughs> And so one of the fun things about our current campaign is that it's a campaign whose design is uh, to include racial justice and economic justice as well as climate justice. And it's challenging our utility. Actually, this is pretty relevant all over Pennsylvania, right? Because there's all this going on now about nuclear and so on. Uh, it's challenging our electrical utility to invest in high unemployment areas in, the, in southeast Pennsylvania um, in such a way as to power local green jobs, to empower people, to train, you know, hire people recently come out of incarceration, so on and so on, do rooftop solar, whatever kinds of solar are, is needed. Um, they need, uh, the utility needs to get electricity anyway, should be getting it from there and in such a way as to be building wealth in those communities and, and hiring jobs and all that. So, uh, so uh, but to, in order to win, we had to set a goal that doesn't sound like all that much. They need to commit to 20% solar by 2025 for us to stop harassing them <laughs> and going after them. So, so we've been building, building, building. Now, in, in a climate crisis context, what's 20% solar, right, uh, by 2025? So on the other hand, uh, there's no way to handle the whole crisis in one campaign, right? So, uh, so the way that I'm excited about being your voice in our context, in our strategic context, is that now we're saying, after a couple of years of of uh, winning, winning practically everybody in Philadelphia's agreement is such a reasonable thing. Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? Now we're saying, well, they're not doing it because they're uh, be because the they they are so invested in fossil fuels. They're so invested in the old way that they can't. They're like dinosaurs and they can't adjust to what needs to happen. So we need to take 
the utility away from its parent corporation, which is based in Chicago, uh, and municipalize it and make it a people's energy utility. Uh, and then we, the people, know we know what we want, and we'll get that. So, um, yeah, so that's an example of how sometimes you can go after a, a, a pro, you know, an, a, what looks like a not very big goal, and yet is, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not agreeing to it yet, and then start threatening them with something that really stretches to the whole vision question. Why are utilities owned by, uh, by private concerns anyway? Um, I'd so, like to. So, so you're talking about scaling exciting. down, George. Sometimes mm. you just need to scale way down mm. uh, to have a really. I was reading about this in Michael Walzer's book, Political Action, which I also recommend for you. That just came out, uh, in which he talks about tactics too. Sometimes you just need to scale really far down just to get the smallest of victories, so you can have some hope to go on. And so, if you fail in that victory, if you fail in that one campaign, and you can't see succeeding elsewhere, get something really, really tiny where you can make some sort of difference for the group so that it has some sense of hope about going on. The other thing I want to say is I want to make a case for failing, too. Uh, my, we the Resistance is full of campaigns that have just completely failed. And today I was writing about children's campaigns, children's nonviolent campaigns, uh, campaigns in which children played a prominent role. And I was putting together these stories because I wanted to share them with children. And it, was, it became really depressing in some ways because all of the campaigns failed. <laughs> None of them succeeded. And they were very important campaigns in history. For example, uh, Mother Jones campaigned with milk children in 1903. She had to march to New York uh, to the home of President Theodore Roosevelt to demand uh, reforms for child labor laws, and it didn't work. It worked many, many years later. But, wow, here I am studying it today and sharing that tactic and the dreams of those children with other children. I think there's beautiful value in that. But I also want to say that sometimes we do become so concerned with effectiveness and with the numbers of people who are joining us that we lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing. Sure, we want to win, and that's what George, George's book focuses on. But damn it, if we don't win, we did it anyway. And we acted on our principles, and it would have been horrific had we not. Nevertheless, a win is awesome. Hi, I just have a quick uh, comment and question. Uh, when you talked about Iran, um, I just saw somebody tweeted today an old 2012 tweet of Don, Donald Trump that said, uh, Barack Obama is going to go to war with Iran so he can win the next election. <laughs> he wrote that in 2012. Wag the dog, have you? Yeah. I was like, oh my God. Wow. On his mind. Yes. On his oh, mind. didn't he accuse uh, President Trump or President Obama to of playing too much golf? <laughs> that, that's Sorry true. <laughs> so I wanted to ask about this book. So you talk about some of the politics 
going on now in, in the United States in this book, including the, the, the fact that the Republican and Democrat Party are both, uh, you know, under the elite uh, co-op. Mm -hmm. so do, do you address that in this, in this book at all? This book assumes that that's the case. Mm -hmm. That is, it assumes that the economic elite owns and, and runs both, both parties, and then asks, well, then what do we do in that context? And my, uh, actually, it's a multiple-step uh, narrative in the book. Uh, and so it starts with nonviolent direct action campaigns to chalk up some wins so people think, oh my gosh, maybe I'm worth, I, I have capacity, maybe I have agency, maybe together we can collectively get something done. And then the campaigns in this book, this is what I propose, campaigns very often cr uh, create a movement among them, right? Like the uh, anti-nuclear power campaigning that was done here and, and, uh, and many, many places in the country. So there was an anti-nuclear power movement, right? And there were campaigns that, there were some campaigns won, some campaigns lost, but the movement as a whole won. The economic elite wanted a thousand nuclear power plants in this country. They got about 80. We won, they lost. Uh, so, that, so that's a movement. But then it has to go farther than that. The question then becomes, okay, so uh, the civil rights movement stimulates this movement, that movement, Chavez, and so on. M student movements, peace movement, so on, so on, so on. There are all these movements. Then the question is, will those movements get together and thereby create the scale that enables our dreams get to come true, which require, because it, 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 it's, it needs to be that scale to be able to push the economic elite out of the way and create the society that we want to create, including one that, that makes the climate change uh, uh, adjustments that are needed, right? We can't do that and have the economic elite both. So we have to get rid of the economic elite's power its domination in order to be able to do that. But that requires multiple movements. So the way I then thought backwards was, well, what are the ingredients in the nonviolent direct action campaigns that we organize that make it easier for the movements to get together? Because there's very big temptation for one movement to make an independent peace with the economic elite you know, and get, while the other ones aren't. You know, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Competitiveness shows up among activists. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we need uh, to build into the campaigns uh, a kind of DNA that then results in the movements being able to form coalition. And that's what enables us to throw out the economic elite. And that's what they pulled off in the Viking countries. It was easier for them to do it, which was why they did it so long ago. It's harder for us to do it, but now, I think we're kind of better because else we're toast. George, I see we have a question over <laughs> here, but one of the things I want to follow up on is the Occupy movement, George. Yeah. And I think sometimes we're so concerned about elitism mm. that in our movements, we try to be overly democratic and almost be leaderless. And in your book, you talk about the importance of leadership and, so, and different roles, assigning different roles to people in uh, organizations. Right, right. Do you think the Occupy movement failed in part because it lacked- Oh, the leadership question, yes. Yeah. They, couldn't, they couldn't agree, for example, to 
uh, declare victory and leave. Right. They, there was no way that they could agree on anything like that. Right. Yeah, that was a tremendous problem. So yes, so you're right. My book very much uh, emphasizes what's nowadays among young people being is called um, leaderful. Right. Leaderful. Yeah, movements. I like it. Yeah. Right. Let's everybody be a leader yeah. together with the skills of leaders, which are, is uh, cooperation. But the groups need assigned roles. So but that we, we need roles, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Because if everybody's trying to do the same thing, or you know, in each other's way, we, yeah, 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 yeah. Not everybody can be Dr. King. And, <laughs> and one of the things I love about Selma, I'm curious about your reaction to Selma. The movie Selma, as compared with all the other movies I've seen about the civil rights movement, really shows him with his posse. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It shows him with his gang. Yeah. And there they all arguing among themselves. Yeah. And he's listening to their collective wisdom and the different perspectives and the different arguments. And they still did need the Lord, you know, to make, right. to, okay, that's what we're going to do. But it was very, very col collective in his character. And usually movies just show him as this kind of lonely, you know, <laughs> lonely, whatever. Right. Uh, and it, it was so different. Well, let me talk a little bit about that before we go to this next yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the King's Circle was really tight, and it was full of black Baptist ministers, and it was full of big egos as well. Uh, <laughs> Jesse Jackson was in that group. Uh, Andrew Young? And he was Andrew Young? He was a Methodist, but so anyway. <laughs> Andrew Young was assigned, in Dr. King's mind, the role of the conservative. Mm -hmm. And Jesse Jackson and the younger folks were assigned the role of the radicals. Mm -hmm. And so what Dr. King did, he made sure to get them all together in a room so that they could fight it out, and they did, and it got really nasty sometimes. And then he would usually say something like, okay, and now I have to go pray. And then he would leave the room and come back with his decision. But he would do it only when he heard Andy Young on the right and the radicals on the left. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the question sure. over here. We have two, time for two final questions. We'll go here and then we'll go there oh, for the okay. final question. Sure. Hi. Um, yes, I was involved with Occupy Harrisburg for a while and now I've, for the last two years I've been one of the organizers of a local indivisible chapter. And just to speak to a couple of points that came earlier, why liberals might not be doing as well. Um, there's been some studies done on the psychology of of uh, conservatives versus liberals and how that fear factor really mm. motivates the people on, on the right, the conservatives, whereas fear is not as motivating for liberals. So that fear has a great you know, potential for focusing, mm -hmm. focusing action and attention, whereas if you are not as afraid, you tend to go in your own directions. And I think that happens That's with... Good liberal causes is that we each have our own cause we want to go to and it's very hard to kind of herd the cats to work mm -hmm. together. Um, certainly in, within Indivisible that's also a chore because there are so many problems now and even within you know we want to, to make inroads at the grassroots political level in order to try and change things from, from the grassroots up in terms of the political parties. Um, but when you have a lot of these things just taking people's attention, and they only have so much time because everybody's out there you know, with their kids or earning a living or just doing what they need to do to survive. So part of the problem is, one, how do you get the time to do what's necessary to do all these things? And two, how do you motivate people and new people? Because especially in the indivisible, uh, at least the chapters around here, 
we're pretty much 85% women 50 years old, older and older. So we don't have the diversity to really connect with a lot of different um, groups to, to build those coalitions. We're trying to do that more, but those are, those are the challenges that we have in, in order to do these kinds of grassroots activism. So that gives a chance to come back to the roles point that you mm -hmm. made, because what's really worked for us in Earthquaker Action Team, this action group I talked about, uh, we sustained our campaign for five years. That's a long time to sustain. 125 actions, people in and out of jail, it was amazing. Um, but we figured out a way not to burn anybody out. <laughs> and to enable people to have lives, you know, rear children, whatever, and study, whatever, get ready for exams and so on, and still keep things moving at a very uh, high pace. So, and, and I actually describe that in the book, or actually one of my colleagues describes it, um, because it's a new formulation, and I've been in so many different kinds of movement organizations over the years, and this is something new that we invented that it seems to be the most sustainable thing so far for enabling people to do quality work but not burn themselves out and take breaks and be able to have a life at the same time. So that's, yeah. and, it, and the roles uh, concept is really, really critical on that. Yeah. Right. Oh, you're from. Uh, you have management background. You'll love this this uh, this uh, in innovation that we've come up with. Yeah. Yeah. I really recommend that part of the book where he talks about different roles. Mm -hmm. uh, and this isn't addressing your question at all. But Michael Walter also makes the case that big causes at a national level really need professional organizers. Mm -hmm. So the young folks who are here tonight who've put so much time and energy into volunteer work, I also encourage you to think about becoming a professional organizer. There's value in joining these organizations and devoting your life to your professional life, to organizing. Mm. I agree. I mean, George focuses, I think you focus most of your attention to volunteers mm -hmm. in your mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. But we do need some staff, for one thing, to keep us from crashing into each other. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Final question on the stairs. Thank you. Um, so I'm curious, because I don't, I didn't hear it, maybe I missed it, but I was wondering what your definition of violence is. Um, I can't quite I, hear you. I was wondering, oh, sorry. I was wondering what your definition of violence is. And do you think violence is only really in terms of physical altercation? Um, because I, the way I understand violence isn't just physical, it's also systemic. Um, so in the example you use, like Rosa Parks, um, her sitting on the front of the bus was an act of nonviolent resistance, yes. But her getting pulled off of that and arrested doesn't address the part of the story where white people on the bus are not helping her, when white people are actually like just sitting there, also not participating in any physical violence, but they are being violent. Um, and I also think about how like Dr. King is so often talked about in these like really romantic, nonviolent ways, but he by the end of his life especially, wasn't completely nonviolent. He started advocating for the need for violence. Um, like the phrase, which one is, 
I think very popular is riots are the language of the unheard. Um, there's also another one where he said, urban riots must now be recognized as durable social phenomena. Um, by the end of his life, he did recognize the validity of violence and considering like Gandhi and Lenin also were nonviolent activists, but also Lenin beat his ex-wife. So let's take that with a grain of salt. But all of those people were still shot and murdered. Um, and then I think a lot about Standing Rock and I think about how the majority, all of those actions were nonviolent. It was very intentionally nonviolent. Um, people prayed, they danced, they chained themselves to equipment, they blocked off roads, they went to town or city meetings to try to talk to legislators, they, the youth did a run all the way to DC to talk to DC legislators, um, they, they danced even with the cops who were actively there like arresting them. They arrested them later the same day, they danced with them. Um, and they were still met with pepper spray. They were met with um, cold water from like really high pressured hoses, as you probably saw in the civil rights movement, um, during like negative 30 degree weather. Um, there was a huge story where a girl got her arm almost blown off by um, a beanbag um, shot out of a gun from the cops. And dogs were released on them. Um, and they still built a pipeline after all of that resistance. And I wonder how much nonviolence can and will get us if that is what we're up against. Because um, that was some of the most like brave and like intense nonviolent action I've ever seen from thousands of people, hundreds of thousands throughout the whole like process. Um, and nothing came of it. Obama himself, I guess, near the end of his term even said, please don't build the pipeline, or like was against it, they still built it. They found loopholes. They built even when their um, permits were pulled, and that happens to pipelines everywhere. They still build. Um, so when is nonviolence like gonna win? Mm -hmm. So nonviolence has won. I do want to point that out. It's lost a lot, and the assassination of Dr. King is a perfect example. Uh, and we can find lots of anecdotes where nonviolent campaigns have failed because they've met violence. If you look at the data over a long period of time, you will see that nonviolent campaigns, especially since 2001, have won twice as many times as violent campaigns. And here I'm gonna point you to Erica Chenoweth, who's a scholar of nonviolent campaigns and an active participant in nonviolent campaigns as well. She makes a case and she backs it with data. It's beautiful work. I think it's called Why Civil Resistance Matters, that nonviolence does win, it has won, and it will win. It takes a long campaign sometimes to win. Now, violence, violence runs through these nonviolent campaigns as well. They run through in terms of personalities. They, sometimes they break out in violent flanks. But even a, even a nonviolent movement that has violent flanks is less likely to win than a purely nonviolent movement. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say, as I said, that there's violence. I mean, if 
I have a student who's sitting here, Abby, and in class, Abby, if I remember, you defined violence as acts of omission and commission uh, that cause harm physically, emotionally, uh, psychologically, is that right? Would you say that's a fair definition? And you can see those acts in nonviolent leaders like King. He was clearly violent. And Dr. King, when he started civil rights movement, had guns all through his house. He was not nonviolent. But he came to see the wisdom of nonviolence through Bayard Rustin and some Quakers who taught him about pacifism, too, as a way of life. And I do want to distinguish... And Coretta Scott King. And Coretta Scott King, too. Uh, and I do want to distinguish between pacifism and nonviolence. You don't have to be a pacifist to be nonviolent. Mm. Pacifism is a commitment to a way of life that refuses to use violence as a means to accomplish goals. But there are lots of people in nonviolent movements who are simply not pacifists, but who are, are driven by the effectiveness of nonviolence. Believe me, I hear you, and, and sometimes I'd love to be violent. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But in terms of the question of effectiveness, I know that in the long run, chances are I'll be more effective if I remain nonviolent than if I become violent. That's just what the data teach me. That's what history has taught me as well. Pardon me? Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, C-H-E-N-O-W-E-T-H and S-E-S-T-E-P-H-A-N. And if you look at the U.S. Institute of Peace, you'll find studies indicating the same thing. I'm just not making this stuff up. nonviolence has made changes. I'm just concerned that using it as a primary tactic when you rec it requires a long-term process in the face of climate chaos is not viable. And I'm not saying that like a violent uprising is the solution. I'm just saying I don't, I don't feel like I get good answers from the nonviolent movement that will actually make change as fast as we need it. Well, it may not make change as fast as you need it, but let me encourage you to be violent and see how successful you'll be. I'm not encouraging you to be violent, but try violence and you'll see how successful you'll be. You'll end up in jail for a long time. You won't collect allies, the allies you need to secure the power you need. Studies suggest, I hate to say that, I sound like you know, when I was a kid, but studies tell you that if you remain nonviolent, you will gain more allies and more partners in order to accomplish the power you need. If you're violent, you're not going to do that. If you go out and use violence right now to accomplish some goal, you're not going to get many backers at all. If you use nonviolent, you're much more attractive to the people you need to accomplish, to get the power you need to accomplish your goals. I mean, violence is sexy, it's attractive, it's ineffective. George, you wanna to add to that? Yeah, um, yeah, in fact, the evidence, the track record of armed struggles is that they can take very, very long time and then lose anyway. In the Philippines, for example, now it's been 40 plus years that the, the, the guerrillas have been using, you know, armed struggle to win, and they just can't win, and they just can't. Um, 
And then at one point uh, along the way, one of the things they wanted to do was uh, throw Marcos out, and they couldn't do it. And then uh, along came a nonviolent campaign, which threw him out in a year and a half. Um, there, there's a lot of examples, actually, in which nonviolent struggle has been more efficient, actually gotten things done quicker uh, than, than violent struggles that were happening beforehand. In fact, the, my first study uh, uh, research in, of this kind was 1944 in El Salvador when there was an armed struggle to get a, uh, get a dictator out who had been in power for 10 years, and it failed. And then the students said, well, okay, that didn't work. Let's try a strike. And so they declared a student strike and called on all El Salvadorians to join them, and enough did so that the dictator was out. Well, and let me it add was a matter this. of weeks. So it's it's uh, it's only an assumption that needs to be tested by the evidence that violence is quick. Actually, there's there's a lot of evidence that violence is the slowest way to make uh, to make change. Let well me throw in the case of South Africa. Africa. I'm sorry, George. I'm South, so, Africa. South Africa. Let me throw in the case of South Africa, where uh, Mandela backed uh, and the African National Congress backed violence. That campaign against apartheid didn't begin to get on the upswing until they had major nonviolent campaigns. Mm -hmm. Violence didn't work in South Africa. The nonviolent campaigns, the boycotts, the strikes, that's what worked. It wasn't the ANC and throwing tires around people. That just didn't work. Uh, and then I better stop. We're just, we're just starting to have fun, uh, but can we give a round of applause for, for George and Michael? Afterward, could I just say that we could talk a little bit more. I'd love for you to get the, those authors, because there's a great story about those co-authors who've done now the most empirically uh, challenging book about this, this question. And Alex, Afterward, my concluding word too. Yeah. The heart of political power is obedience. This is what Gene Sharp teaches us. People have power because we obey them. Sure. When you start to just withdraw a little bit, the power starts to crumble. Why does President Trump have power? Because so many of us are obeying. That's why. Books. Books are available to purchase up at the cafe. Michael and George are going to stick around for a book signing, um, and you can uh, ask them some more questions over there. So thanks again for coming, everyone. Have a good night.